I can kind of boil all of this down to these two and a half words is what these leaders do is they create these two conditions simultaneously. The first is safety and the second is stretch. Safety and stretch, safety and stretch. Welcome to another episode of the Right Side Up Leadership Podcast, where we have ridiculously practical conversations about health and leadership. Guys, we're serious. We believe that you can go the distance in life and leadership without losing your soul. And today is such a good episode with somebody who's impacted me a lot. I read her book, Multipliers, when somebody told me, you've got to read this. And as I read it, I thought, I know this stuff inside, and she gives language to it, which really are the best books, the ones that have impacted me the most. And so as we dig in with Liz Wiseman, know that she's impacting organizations all over the world. She consults in all kinds of different areas, but she's incredibly grounded in her community there in Northern California. She is helping leaders and organizations win, and there's this simple idea that we need to be multipliers, pulling the genius out of other people instead of being diminishers, literally using other people to sort of step on and step over to get to our success. She really embodies the heart of what we do here at Stay Forth Designs. And I absolutely loved geeking out in this conversation with Liz Wiseman. So as always, grab a cup of good locally roasted coffee, sit down, maybe continue on your run, walking your dog, doing the dishes, whatever you're doing, and enjoy this next episode of the Right Side Up Leadership Podcast with Liz Wiseman. Well, hey guys, I'm really excited about today's podcast. Uh, We've got Liz Wiseman on the line, and uh, Liz really impacted me in a season where I was looking for kind of the next stages from addition to multiplication, Uh, And what does that look like in developing leaders? And some of the side things I was doing was honestly just struggling to get traction. And a friend of mine put this book in my chest and said, you need to read this. She is speaking your language. And so I had to reach out to Liz after that and was very uh, gracious to return emails and and chat a little bit through that. And it's been gracious to join us uh, today on the phone as we talk about multipliers. So Liz, thanks for taking some time in your busy schedule to join us on the podcast. Well, it's totally my pleasure. Thanks for reading the book. Absolutely. And uh, I think I maybe read through it three or four times. Um, I remember doing kind of a summary on it and got the summary in front of me as I think about, man, where do we even talk about this in just a short segment? Why don't you start with just some of the pieces of your story that got you from where you were to now you know, influencing people all over the country, I'm sure all over the world. How did you get to where you're at today? Well, you know, funny is I'm actually today doing the work that I wanted to be doing right out of college. So right out of college, I wanted to um, teach management, teach leadership. I don't know what possessed me at 20, what was it, 23 years old, that that was a good idea. And someone said, you know, we'd love to hire you to do that. And that's what we do as a company, but maybe you should actually go and learn something about management before doing that. And that was really that was this path that led me to the kind of work I do. And it's also the path that led me to this observation because I went to work for a, a, this young Maverick software company and uh, they're called Oracle. 
nobody knew him about it at the time. You know, they were still, they were very new. Like my business school buddies all thought I went to work for a toothpaste manufacturer and they were young, they were growing and they were, they were hiring like crazy, you know, fueling this growth. And they had this really interesting hiring profile. They, they looked for people who were kind of had this trifecta of, of, talent, if you will, which is they look for people who were kind of freaky smart, really, really driven. And then the third thing was nice. And, you know, they rarely compromised on smart and driven, but they sometimes compromised on nice. So I just want you to imagine like the the employee population of this company. And I landed in there not having gone to one of these top schools that they recruited at. And I became absolutely fascinated with this group of like super smart, super driven, semi-nice people. And and I noticed something about all of these because I, I was really, I was working with brilliant people. A lot of them were like Mensa level genius type people. And I just watched as I worked and I noticed something about intelligence and I noticed I, I got thrown into management really, really young. So probably 25 when they said, Liz, you're now in charge of training for the company. And Larry Ellison wants a university, you know, go build Oracle University. So that set me down on this path. So I got thrown into management. I'm working with all these really brilliant executives. And I'm noticing that not all of these brilliant executives cause brilliance around them. Like there's some really, really smart people who, who suck the intelligence out of a room. And I, I just noticed this. I'm like, wow, why is it that that leader seems to dumb everyone down? Like he's brilliant, but no one around him gets to be brilliant. Like his intelligence was, was a weapon. And then I noticed other leaders who, who were equally smart and capable, but people around them got to be smart and capable. And I just was I don't know. I was just curious about it. And I watched it for years and I watched a lot of my really smart friends end up, you know, like holding back around certain leaders. And it just didn't seem, I don't want to say it wasn't right from like a moral standpoint. It didn't seem necessary. I'm like, wait, why would you dumb down someone you worked so hard to recruit? Like, why wouldn't you want people around you to be as smart as they are when they came to you. So that's really, it was kind of landing in this um, sea of really capable people that made me realize that capability is, um, isn't a given, that there's some really capable people who aren't allowed to be as capable as they could be. And I ended up calling those leaders diminishers and other leaders multipliers and did the research, but that's a whole nother story. A whole nother story. And it hits so close to home. Like as you're saying that, listeners, you're going, oh man, that person and this person. So what are the overarching differences between a multiplier that pulls the greatness out of people and a diminisher that sort of pushes them into the mud um, so that they can move on? What are the big differences there, Liz? Well, well, here's what I studied. As I looked at these two leaders, I looked at these types of leaders through the eyes of their their followers. And I was looking for three things. What is different about what they do? 
their behavior, their skills, their leadership practices. I looked at what's different about how they think, how they see the world, their worldview, their mindsets. And I also looked at the difference in results, like what they got from other people. And I think the first thing that was shocking to me is that they get such different levels of capability from people. These, these diminishing leaders got less than half of people's available capability. So 48% is what came out of the research. So of course they're, they're hiring people at a hundred percent, they're paying people at a hundred percent, but yet people who work for them are only able to give, you know, a fraction, less than half of their capability. And what tends to drive this, it starts with their, their mindset. And, you know, these diminishing leaders tend to hold a belief, an assumption, if you will, that, that um, nobody's going to figure it out without me. That, yeah, you know, I may be surrounded by capable people, but I'm, I'm needed. That without me, people can't get the job done, can't cross the finish line. And so their orientation tends to be for themselves outward. And, you know, like I I was um, once explaining this idea of multipliers to, this was kind of a Silicon Valley, um, oh, I don't know why I want to say Titan, but, you know, he was a founder CEO of a big tech company in the Bay Area. And I'm explaining this multipliers concept to him. And he goes, oh, because, you know, I say these are leaders who use their intelligence in a way that amplifies intelligence in others. And he's like, oh, well, that's great. So they, they multiply their ideas. And I'm like, well, not exactly. And I re-explain it. They use their intelligence in a way that brings out intelligence and ideas and capability and innovation in the people around them. And he goes, oh, oh, okay, like my bad, I get it. And he and he then says, okay, so what these leaders do is is these are leaders who multiply themselves so that every, everyone does what they want them to do. So, of course, you know, I realize that the second answer is way worse than the first. And, and and he doesn't get it because see, his orientation is from himself outward. How do I? project my thinking on other people? How do I share my ideas with everyone else? How do I get other people to see it the way I see it? They tend to have a very um, self-orientation. And the multiplier has a very, very different logic. Instead of thinking that no one's going to figure it out without me, they hold this belief that fundamentally people are smart and are going to figure it out. Like you don't even have to think that you're surrounded by geniuses. It's just reminding yourself that people are capable and actually that people want to do a really good job. And so their team doesn't become dependent on them. You know, their job is to provoke, to unleash, to be a a, a platform, a spark or maybe a support, it's probably a little bit of a support and a little bit of a poke, you know, to their team. They see themselves very differently. Their orientation is on the people around them, which is why they get this um, multiplier effect. You know, sometimes I look at it just with the basic math, like what, what do you want more of in your organization? 10% more of the manager, or what if the manager could get 10% more ideas and capability effort or whatever from the people around her. Like, 
I'll take the second option because the numbers are so much greater. The sheer numbers, I mean, not even to, to mention what's being missed out on, morale, how that employee has made their exit plan before we even think so. It's interesting on the coaching end, Liz, when you talk about the diminishers, there's this perfect or maybe quintessential example of that was uh, somebody that I was coaching and then somebody else within the organization. It all pointed back to a diminisher. And I thought how he was sucking the air out of the room and out of uh, just even the dignity out of the team that they had valuable work to do and how many hours we spent on that. That's expensive time that they're spending on the company's dollar being able to talk about this. Ultimately, they move the diminisher on and then some incredible things happened when they put a multiplier there in place. So a diminisher, Liz, do you think that's coming from pride or lack of self-awareness? Well, I think at first pass, it looks like it's pride. And, you know, the kind of like if I asked everyone listening to identify someone who was a diminisher to you and someone who was a multiplier to you, you're going to pick someone who who's maybe an extreme. And often at first pass, we think of these diminishers as these tyrannical, narcissistic, egomaniac kinds of bullies who impose their will on the organization. You know, in some ways we think, oh yeah, these are like, I don't know, either really insecure people or really prideful people, or I don't know, like the kid who was like pulling the legs off the spider and, you know, like frying bugs with a magnifying glass when he was, you know, a little kid. And I studied a lot of these leaders, but what I found is that most of the diminishing that's happening isn't coming from these really prideful, prideful, like ego-driven kinds of leaders, that most of the diminishing is coming from um, really well-intended leaders. And, you know, and I'm doing the research, Alan, and I'm, I'm getting to, it's like looking at the vast majority of these diminishers, and it's like when you're watching a movie and you get to that part in the movie where there's a plot twist and you realize that the good guys might actually be the bad guys. Do you know when you've seen movies like this? You're like, whoa. Yeah, that's good. Like mind blown. Like, whoa, not what I was thinking. And that most of diminishing is done by really good people, nice people, well-intended managers, managers who are often just working too hard who are over-contributing, or leaders who are too helpful, which is one of the reasons why we see this dynamic play out over and over in church communities, where you would never expect leaders are like smothering capability and energy in other people. It's everywhere. You're, I mean, when you talk about the person that's too helpful, I mean, we talk about helicopter parents in our culture, but what about the helicopter boss? What about the helicopter assistant, the helicopter, whatever. So interesting. You're talking about potentially you helping somebody else is not only holding them back, but your organization back. That's fascinating, Liz. Well, and let's just talk about, um, I guess, you know, we call it helicopter parents. I kind of in the the work world, I think of it as rescuing. And rescuing is one of the number one ways people accidentally diminish, meaning causing people to hold back and to play it safe, uh, to stop giving their full capability while the leader has the very, very best intentions. Because, you know, so here's the heart of the rescuer. The rescuer um, loves their people. They care about their people. Uh, 
you know, they probably ask them how their weekend was. They probably know their kids' names. And, and when they see the people around them struggling or suffering, they, they want to help. And, and it's not that they necessarily want to be the superstar. Sometimes when we help, they're like, you know, it's kind of like step aside and let me do my work. You know, it, it is a little ego driven or prideful driven, but sometimes it's an honest attempt to want to see people successful. And, and so we jump in and we lend a hand and we lend a hand too early or too often. And what happens to people's capability, you know, we know what happens to sort of the, the children of helicopter parents, but in the workplace, people learn to pull back, to wait for the rescue. And, and you have to, you know, think about the messages that are sent. Like if, if you were to rescue me on a project, you know, Ellen, you and I are working together on a project and I'm struggling with a piece of that. And you were to come in and help to rescue. What have you really kind of um, telegraphed to me? What have you said to me? You are not ready. You don't have what it takes. You're not producing at this level, but, but certainly I am. Let me come in and grab this, uh, which think about the limiting beliefs that that's leaving beyond that. So the diminisher effect, I'm sure, is like a learned helplessness. I do think it is a learned helplessness. And and what you know, I learned to do is to say, you know what, I'll let Alan do this. Like, oh, I'm not particularly good at this. This part's hard for me, so I'll, I'll let Alan. And so you get to be an A-plus at this, and you get better and better, and I begin to stagnate and, and languish and then don't even try. And... And, you know, I'm learning that I can't get this done without you. And you're starting to build a belief that Liz isn't going to figure this out without me, which is the exact dead center mindset of a diminishing leader. And, you know, you never intended it that way. You never said, like, oh, Liz doesn't seem so capable, so I'm going to have to do her work for her. But out of the goodness of your heart, you know, versus if you let me struggle a little bit, figure it out on my own, maybe even suffer to a certain degree. What have you, what have you telegraphed to me now? Dignity, helpfulness, the exact message we all kind of ask when we get out of bed in the morning. Do we have what it takes? Um, even the idea of fulfillment, like how have we take in the fulfillment of meaningful work away from people by maybe stealing their best opportunity to grow. So many light bulbs going off, Liz, right now as you say this. Yeah. Yeah, and you know, it's when we let people struggle, we're sending a message, not that I don't care about you, because we can care about people as they're struggling, but we're sending a message is, I actually think you can do this. Like you have the capacity to do this. I think you can grow into this. Um, you know, you can do more than you're doing. And, and so it's learning to send that message to people. I, you know, I find the best leaders have become comfortable watching other people be uncomfortable. That's great. And not stepping in. That's so good. And, and, and actually it, it, it holds back a lot of would be great leaders because I watch them. I'm like, you know, if you can't sit back and let people struggle and even fail, like you, you'll never really be able to bring out the best in them. Like people will always be dependent on you and you'll always get kind of like a fraction of people's capability. That's good. And 
I mean, coming from the lens of a coach, that's the coach leader. And all the research is out that that is the leader that helps you grow into who you are uniquely designed to be, to do what you're uniquely designed to do. Uh, and that fits so closely with what we do here at Stay Forth Designs, literally talking about life design and impact design. Uh, fascinating quote. I've said this many times. Uh, I'm going to read from the book from Multipliers. As we studied multipliers and diminishers, you say, we heard case after case of smart individuals being underutilized by their leaders. We learned that it is indeed possible to be both overworked and underutilized. And we talk about villain. The, the villain in a lot of people's story is that idea of burnout. Like we're actually kind of dying from the inside out, pushing too hard, uh, overworking. You were talking about that earlier, that maybe they're not bad or evil leaders. Maybe they're exhausted leaders. And that's the only way they know how to lead. Talk about that idea of how many people in the workforce are overworked and underutilized at the same time. Oh, I think it's this is a dirty little secret of the work world that we don't talk about very much. And, you know, I'm intent on talking about it. That I think there are so many people who are busy. Like they couldn't be working harder. They're juggling a lots of balls. They're, you know, they, they come home from work exhausted. They're busy, but they're secretly bored. You know, they're coming into work every day knowing that they could do more. And and they want to do more. And what happens is when we're overworked and underutilized, the words that came up over and over in my research is that people said it's frustrating and it's exhausting. It's exhausting. And I'm like, wow, why is it exhausting to be underutilized? And, and you know, it's once I once asked that question and um, I was in a big room, big ballroom full of like there are thousands of people in there. And I asked, why is it exhausting to be underutilized and a woman in the very, very back of the room, I encourage people to shout out the answer. And she really took me seriously on the shout out because she yells kind of at the top of her lungs. She's like, because it's a lot of work to act this stupid. And, you yeah. know, I think it captures, captures that there's a lot of people who are putting their active energy, almost like, um, you know, we talk about like the, what's the best part of your day, you know, where you have the most energy. It's like they, they take the, the most valuable real estate, their greatest levels of energy, trying to figure out what does my boss want? Does she want me to speak up? Should I stay quiet and let her answer this? Should I take responsibility or is that going to encroach? In her? Like they're using their intellect in the second guessing. And, and then when we ask people, what's it like working for a multiplier? Here's what people say. I think it's really, really interesting. People say, so I kept a you know, track of the words that were used frequently. Uh, two words that came up highest and often together were, uh, it's exhausting, but it's exhilarating. And it's this state, like a great workout where you are tired, but you're totally energized. And, you know, we all have been in that state where you're like, man, no, I'm working really, really hard. Like I'm giving this everything I have and particularly when leaders keep people in this state of tension, not freak out, where do I stand tension, but I'm being asked to do things above my capability level. Like I'm stretching, I'm really reaching, building skills. Like this is tiring, but so exhilarating. And, and you do not burn out in this space. Um, you know, burnout is such an epidemic. Here's where I think we have a false notion about it. 
we often think burnout is a result of too much work. I don't think this is the case at all. I think burnout is about too little utilization and too little challenge. Like when we just have more and more work, we burn out. But when we're constantly given new types of work and new levels of challenge, and when we're deeply engaged and deeply utilized, this is not a burnout situation. This is a buildup situation. That's good. The difference between burnout and buildup and has been true in my life in those seasons where I thought, man, I'm working, maybe I'm working hard, but it feels like toil. It's in the wrong type of things, but my capacity is so much lower in those seasons than, Hey, this is going to be a ride. Dig in, be stretched. We talk about how uh, nobody wants to be underutilized and and nobody wants to be overused or, you know, kind of squeezed out and just used for who you are. But everybody wants to be utilized. Everybody wants to be whelmed. How do we move kind of from, you know, underwhelmed to whelmed, from overwhelmed to whelmed in the right areas? But there are times when people probably say to you, Liz, how do you do it all? You know, because they're saying, I don't know if I could do all this because you may be so wired for for your work. Talk a little bit more about moving from that space. If, If we have somebody who we're leading that, it just feels like they're underutilized. What are a few practical things we can do to pull them up toward being utilized from being underwhelmed to pull them up to being whelmed in that role? Oh, that's a fun question. And it's a question I've never really been asked in that particular way. So I'm going to try to draw on the five disciplines that I see these multiplier leaders do. So I haven't, I'm thinking about this as I go. So let's see if I can do this with the five different things. The first thing we find that these multipliers do is they're talent magnets. People love to work for them, and it's because they don't just acquire resources. They utilize people's genius. So if someone's feeling overwhelmed and you want to get them to that whelmed state, deeply engaged, look for somebody's native genius, like the thing they do easily and freely. And because when you are working in this space where it's a native genius. It's a God-given gift that you're, so it's like a God-given mental gift. They're just, there seems like there's endless hours in the day. People um, take on new challenges. They work um, with ease, without effort. They work freely. You don't have to put incentive plans. People are at their very best when they're working in their uh, space of native genius. Um, this is one, the second, um, you know, multipliers operate as liberators. They, they, um, give people space to think I would, if someone is feeling overwhelmed, I would focus on how do I create intellectual safety for them? And, and one of the fastest ways to do this, I know you guys are, what you call it? Ridiculously practical. Ridiculously practical. Okay. So I'm going to try to do, so first ridiculously practical thing is like, look for people's native genius, talk to them about that, show them how they can use it and work. The second thing is let people know where it's okay to fail. Let people know where it's not okay to fail. Like, don't be one of these like Silicon Valley goofball innovation wannabe leaders who, how I feel about this, um, who are like, oh, just, you know, experiment try, fail forward, fail often, make mistakes. What is it like break things and keep moving? No, people are smarter than that. They know you can't just run around breaking things and, and failing everywhere. 
let them know, you know what, over here in this part of our operation, you know, we don't want a lot of experimentation. Like this part we have to get right, but over here, this is a playground. This is where you can experiment and try new things. It just takes all this pressure off people um, and, and releases a lot of stress. Um, that's a second. Let me see. A third is instead of giving people something to do, instead of giving someone a, a goal or a task or an initiative even, um, give someone a challenge. You know, something with like a 20% stretch factor. Like give someone a challenge that's a size too big. Not three sizes too big. That's overwhelming. But not something they can do today. That's underwhelming. Just, you know... Give someone a piece of work the way you would buy shoes for your toddler, like a size too big. And then when your daughter says, oh, but mommy, my, like, my feet are flopping around in these shoes. You're like, you know what, princess, you're going to grow into this. You'll be all right. Love it. Uh, let your people grow into the next leadership challenge. That's a, that's a great analogy, Liz. Hmm. Let me see. Um, the fourth discipline of multipliers is they tend to be debate makers and you know, let people know, give people an opportunity to weigh in, but give them a chance to change their mind during the debate. That's a way to, you know, cause people to engage, but also to build unity on a team. And lastly is um, the investor discipline. It's about giving people ownership, but also the accountability that comes with it. And I'll give you the most ridiculously practical uh, one ridiculously practical way to do this. This is one um, that I took from John Chambers, who is the former CEO of Cisco. And he's um, a brand new CEO at Cisco and they're rapidly growing. He's hiring his first vice president, a guy named Doug. And Doug's going to run the customer support part of the business. And he says to Doug, he's like, Doug, when it comes to this part of the business, you get 51% of the vote. And 100% of the accountability. I just think this is brilliant. I think there's no faster way to put somebody else in charge than to give them 51% of the vote. Because we often give people 100% of the accountability, but 49% of the vote or some undetermined amount of authority. But if you say, you know what, you've got 51% of the vote, it says, you know what, I trust you. I'm going to back you. And hey, you know, I'm 49%, so consult me, keep me informed. You know, I'd like to have a voice in this, but in the end, you go with what you think you want to do. It will put people, like it'll take people out of that space of like vibrating going, okay, I really don't know. Does he want me to take charge? Like, do I have to run this by him? It removes all that second guessing and lets people just move forward. But you don't have to do this across some big swath of the operation. Like you don't want to do this out of bravado or even like, some false generosity or engagement, pick a small area of responsibility. I, mean, I think I learned to do this with my kids. Um, I think I read something as a young parent about like bounded choice. And so I was like, okay, well, what do you want? Do you want to wear the red shirt today or the blue shirt? But you got to wear a shirt. Like, you know, you don't get to completely dress yourself and like pick a narrow Part, you know, a, a narrow piece of something if you need to, but give someone like full accountability. That's great. It's way more empowering than just say like, yeah, you know what? You get to have a say broadly. Sometimes I'll do what you want. Sometimes I won't. That's 
it's so stressful and overwhelming for people to go, I don't know where I stand. I don't know really what I'm in charge of. And that's not that safety. I put people in charge. There's no safety in that. Like you're, you're talking, Hey, I'm going to support you regardless of what decision you make and sort of forcing them out into that 20% stretch zone. I love it. Right. But keep it narrow enough so that if they do something that feels harebrained to you, you can back them because you don't want to rip back that ownership. Like, Ooh, not that like you're in charge, but not in that way. Give them full responsibility. You know, it's funny. Um, I wrote this book, the first edition I wrote eight years ago. I just did a second edition. Oh, I don't know about two years ago. And it was right before I did the second edition that I had this a little epiphany. Wish I would have had this before I wrote the book was that, wow, all of this boils down to leaders being able to do two things simultaneous. And so I can boil, and this is for the people who aren't, who don't have time to read the book, who don't, who don't want to read the book or already have a tower of guilt, you know, on your desk or in your nightstand, is I could kind of boil all of this down to these two and a half words, is what these leaders do is they create these two conditions simultaneously. The first is safety, and the second is stretch. Safety and stretch, safety and stretch. The, the, the and is the half word. I can't give that like full word status. Uh, but it's like creating safety for people to think and contribute. They know where they stand. They know what they're responsible for. They know what's the freeway versus the playground. They know what's going to get them in trouble versus where they can take risks and be creative. Like create a great work environment. But then once you do it, don't leave it at that. Like call for great work, like stretch people, ask people to do something hard, ask hard questions, give stretch challenges, have high expectations and, and even hold people accountable. Like, mm, that's not done yet. Like come back to me when it's your best. Come back to me when it's all the way done. Like, you know, get that thing across the finish line. That's good. And honestly, we all, we all want to do that. We're all wired to pull that out of people. And we all want that to be done to us, to give that kind of freedom uh, to make a decision, maybe even a mistake. Um, and honestly, we uh, I've seen so many parallels here between the work of Todd Henry. Um, we had him on episode four, and he talked about herding tigers and this idea of respecting the gifts innately in other people and, and pulling those out. Such good stuff. Obviously, I wish we could spend a whole day on this, Liz, uh, you're doing some research right now about the future of work. I can't wait to hear that, read that, study that myself. What are a few trends you see in leaders today that excite you? You know, one of the things I see, maybe not so much in leaders, I see companies reorienting themselves around leadership as a, not even a role, an act as opposed to a person. So we used to think of leaders are people. You know, the, that person is clearly a leader. And of course, the question of our leaders born or made kind of come from this people orientation of leader or leader is a job, like it's a position on an org chart or it's it's a role you fulfill. I think more and more companies are seeing it as a an act. And, and it leads us to this fluid model of leadership. I know um, Google, it's a company I do a fair amount of work for they, they have, it's one of their five criteria. They look for people who are comfortable leading, meaning, hey, 
I got it. I'm in charge. I'm the boss. I know how to be the boss, hopefully more of a multiplier boss and a diminisher boss. And I'm comfortable taking the lead, but I'm also as comfortable following. Meaning, you know, in the 10 o'clock meeting, I'm the leader. I'm the boss. I'm going to run that meeting. I'm going to delegate. I'm going to like do all those kind of leaderly kinds of things. But in the 11 o'clock meeting, so I'm going to walk down the hallway in the 11 o'clock meeting, my buddy, Jonathan is in charge of this project or this initiative. Maybe Jonathan works for me. Maybe he's a peer, but I'm going to follow his lead and I'm going to be just as comfortable. It's kind of like the birds in flight in that V formation that they go out and they pull and they take the, that burden and the blessing of leadership, but they also fall back. And I think this is a kind of leadership we need to, to acknowledge that the world around us is changing really fast. And we can't have all the hard decisions and big initiatives being led by people at the top of the organization. We really need people. We need to harness intelligence and leadership capability from all around the organization. That's good. And I can't wait to dig into to that research. What I'm hearing in all of this, Liz, is a call back to humility and realizing we don't know it all. A call back to recognizing other people's genius. The word that I use, I wrote a book called Everyone's a Genius. And so you're absolutely speaking my language to to discover and kind of do some archaeology on our team, what's buried below the surface. Um, and this works in any field, right? Anywhere where there are humans, this can work. And so business world, uh, you've worked with nonprofits and churches as well from all over the spectrum. Um, let's get personal for, for just a second. Um, what are just a couple of things that you do so you can stay healthy and keep producing good work? Hmm. Well, you know, they, they might seem like they're opposed to, um, but I do try to stay like, I try to keep a few basic health practices. I try to get good sleep. People are like, well, Liz, you are so, you know, I'm a, not only am I a researcher and author and travel all over the world teaching, I'm also a, a mom. I'm a mom of four kids and I'm really active in my church community. You know, my friends call me Dizzy Lizzie, but I'm, I'm pretty good about um, sleep I'm really good about pacing myself. I want, um, I used to mountain bike a lot with my husband and, um, you know, he's far more athletic and strong and all of that. And we were on this really, really steep, um, incline. This was in the Southern Utah. And, and I'm like, there's no way I can make it up this thing. And he's making it up. And I'm like, I've got to like hop off my bike. And like, there's a little pride that's keeping me on my bike. And I remember telling myself, you know what? Don't try to keep up with him. Go at a pace that you can sustain the entire day. You know, rather than, okay, I'm going to be off this incline in 10 minutes or five minutes or even two minutes. Like, go at the pace. You can do this all day long. And that little experience has stuck with me because it's what I tell myself all the time with work is don't, don't burn out. Don't overdo it. Just work at a pace that you could do this forever, even when... I'm like writing a book and I'm in really intense work days. It's like, just if you were doing this forever, if it never ended, could you sustain this pace? Um, I try to do that. Um, I, I try, this is going to sound terrible. I don't know. I think a lot of, a lot of the productive things I've done in my career 
and, you know, things that look like big accomplishments to the outside world. I think most of them have come by just letting go of goals and not being particularly ambitious, just focus instead on doing the best work I can rather than trying to meet external goals. So like, I, 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 I'm even like choking saying it because it's so weird, but I'm exceedingly um, goal ambivalent. Like I don't do goals, which I know surprises a lot of people. Like, wow, Liz, you seem like you're very goal oriented. Like, no, not at all. I'm driven to do good work, but I let go of goals. And I, I find it's like, keeps me really healthy and really happy. And, and I also practice, um, like a, a true Sabbath and I'm a big believer in a Sabbath, not just for religious practice, but I'm a really big believer in like pause and detach. I, you know, I'm pretty, um, diligent about not working at all. I don't pick up any of my professional work on Sundays and it's a chance to just put it all on hold and think, you know, consume yourself with things that matter more than our work. I don't know. Um, those are a few of the things are they, they're probably sound pretty lame though, because it's all about like, don't kind of be a little bit detached from it all. Not lame at all. No. And that's, if you guys are listening saying, did he tell her to say that? No. I mean, that is exactly what we're talking about leaning into knowing your capacity. A lot of times we hide behind our gifts and we hide behind our goals um, or the lack thereof. And so, you know, and somewhere in the middle is saying, I'm going to work hard and I'm going to rest hard. And so thank you for that, Liz. I mean, that is um, exactly what we continue to talk about is what is it like to detach, to play, to rest, to be away from our phones. And um, then we get to work hard the rest of the week. So not work uh, or not rest from work, but work from rest. So um, exactly uh, along with what we're doing in line with what we're doing. Liz, we could crack open conversations for a whole long time. Uh, thank you today for dropping wisdom on us, uh, for sharing your life, getting a little bit personal with some of your habits. Super helpful. Guys, if you're uh, listening to this, if this piques your interest, pick up Multipliers, the new edition of that. Literally changed my life, um, spoke in a language uh, that I've always known was possible and was true. And I was actually writing a book uh, on discipleship at the time, and it's spoken to so many areas there. So Liz, thanks for your time today. Last question for you, just really simply, how can we track along with what you're doing, maybe some upcoming projects and continue to learn from you? Oh, you know, uh, you can connect with me on LinkedIn. I'm pretty easy to find there, Liz Wiseman. Um, I'm at Liz Wiseman on Twitter. We've got a Facebook group for multipliers. And let me see, our the book's website is, that's probably where I would go, multipliersbooks.com. And there's some, we try to put a lot of resources there. And there's a fun little quiz, Are You an Accidental Diminisher? So there's lots out there. And, you know, if you have a question, let me know. I'm pretty easy to find. Liz at thewisemangroup.com. Awesome. Well, thanks for your time, Liz. We really appreciate you dropping in on us today. Great stuff. Parallels so much of what we do. Guys, we'll put all those links in the show notes. But thanks for joining us for another episode of the Right Side Up Leadership Podcast. Thank you, Alan. Wow. 
so many gems in that episode. And I want to kind of review. She talked about these five checkpoints along the way. If we want to be multipliers, people that are pulling the genius out of other people, she talked about these five areas. Number one, give intellectual safety. The question for you, are you giving safety to those you lead to know they have permission to fail? Secondly, look for their native genius. How can you look for and pull out the native genius in those you're leading? The things they're amazing at, the things they naturally do well. Are you pulling out more in them or unearthing more in them than they think is truly possible? The next one is this, give someone a 20% stretch goal. Are you challenging people beyond what they believe they can accomplish on their own? The next one she says is let people change their mind during the debate. Let people change their mind and even your mind during a debate. Many times we come in and we're locked up thinking, oh, this is what I have to believe and I have to hold to my guns versus creating a team, an environment, a relationship of safe debate. Are you allowing other people to disagree with your perspective on the team as the leader? And the last one is simply this, give people ownership. Are you giving people 51% or more of ownership on projects, processes, or initiatives? Many times she reminds us that we become kind of the helicopter leader that's literally holding people back. We have the power to pull out greatness in other people or literally to diminish their greatness. One of the greatest calls that she says of a leader is to pull out the greatness in others. And I truly believe that. And that's what we live out with Stay Forth Designs. We love doing that through coaching. We love doing that with teams through consulting, whether we're on the ground, whether it's through a Zoom call. I mean, there's nothing better for me than when I hear somebody stretch to become something that they didn't believe was possible uh, just months or weeks ahead of time. Uh, also had the privilege of writing a book called Everyone's a Genius. And so Liz and I talk the same language as we talk about pulling genius out of other people. Um, after we hung up on, on this episode, it was really cool that Liz said, you know what, I forgot to mention this, that I believe that the most godly work we do is calling the greatness out of others. And she said, it's, it's literally godlike in that we're seeing the beauty that is created in other people. We're pulling that out and literally giving it a chance to go out into the world. And so love what Liz had to say here today. Make sure to pick up her book, Multipliers, if this is striking a chord with you. Liz has some just incredible things that she's done, but she was also named uh, one of the 50 most powerful women by Fortune magazine. And as they reached out, she began to share about Sabbath and she shared how she continues to produce at such a high level. And she said they even kind of, they didn't like what she was sharing on Sabbath. Certainly there's got to be another trick. Certainly there's got to be something more. Uh, and she said, no, if, if you don't like that, then don't air the article. And so I love how Liz leaned back into Sabbath. She leaned back into this idea that we are not the hero in the story. If we are leaders, we are servants, we are guides, and she is a kindred spirit with our team here at Stay Forth Designs. And just a quick note for you, if you feel like you're struggling to understand your unique wiring, maybe it's time for coaching. We have a team of five different coaches here at Stay Forth Designs that literally pull out the greatness in you. We ask questions, we journey alongside of you for a certain amount of time. And my wife, Julie, does something called unique design coaching 
where she literally uses personality types and tools and overlays those to figure out how are you uniquely designed for impact. You can find all of this info at our website at stayforth.com. Click on our training page and you can find out more about individual leader coaching and team consulting. So we would love to walk alongside of you guys, but thank you for joining us for another episode of this podcast. Guys, we're hearing great feedback. If this is helping you in any way, we'd ask you to share this, rate it, review it, and take a screenshot so that other people on social media can see this. We want to get this into more and more people's earbuds and into their hearts to be reminded you can actually lead and go the distance. You don't have to lose your soul in the process. Thanks for tracking with us with this podcast. We can't wait to join you guys for another episode of the Right Side Up Leadership Podcast. So long.